Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. So, a little bit about my society. Um, have, have many of you heard of, heard of us before come across our work? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so you know that we're um, a social enterprise, we're part charity, part commercial organization. Um, we have our roots in making sites like they work for you, write to them, fix my street. Um, fix my street is. Uh, Probably one of our most new sites. It's used to report around 100,000 highway faults a year to local authorities. Um, and the, the concept behind Fix My Street is that we make it incredibly easy for people to report a problem to their local authority without having to understand the structure of local government. They just have to know it's this type of problem and this is where it is, and we sort out the rest. Um, and it sort of exemplifies our attitude to these kinds of things, which is that you can't do too much to make it really things really simple for your, your users. Um, as well as doing this kind of com- uh, charitable work, we also do commercial work paying clients. And we have this sort of strap line that we make great and simple online tools. Um, an example of that is that we made for um, Channel 4, we did a version inspired by Fixed Masters um, of a next home spotter for the Great British Property Scandal. So if someone had, had come across a property that they thought was empty and they wanted to report it, they could use this web application and mobile application to report it. Um, and we got nominated for a BAFTA, for a BAFTA and an Emmy for this work, which was very proud. But we didn't win um, because the Olympic Prime Minister. So before I get into the substance of the presentation, I just want to a slight warning um, and apologies to those who've never watched an episode of Star Trek in generation. Um, but this is not about big data, it's just about regular size data. Um, <laughs> So, the rest of the presentation is going to be sort of five stories of when we've used data um, and often open data and, and sometimes produce open data as well in our, in our projects. Um, and I'm going to sort of give five different stories and tell you a bit about them and hopefully, hopefully you'll learn something. Um, the first one is about um, postcodes and locations and administrative areas. So, it probably sounds incredibly dull. Um, but this is actually really, really fundamental to almost all of our websites, that we have to be able to connect up a, a physical point, a location, a postcode, to an administrative area. Um, and the reason for that is that the way that our, our geography works, lots of our, our rights um, and our, rep- our, our, um, our representatives, our access to them, is mediated by where we live. So being able to link where we live to a, a region is incredibly important. Um, and if you ever go to <coughs> our websites, things like right to them, which is just been launched in a new design. Yes, we've ever before. Which isn't actually this design, it's something very like it. But I was just about to take a screenshot of the new one, the site's down, of course. Um, so um, I can't show the new one. Um, but you'll notice that you get asked for a postcode, and then we, if you put your postcode in there, you get taken to a page which tells you who your elected rep- representatives are, both the local councillors, your county councillors, the member of parliament, or member of the European parliament. Um, and all of this is powered by a data set sits behind the scenes and an application that we built on top of that. Another site which does something similar for my street, I've already mentioned it. You put in your postcodes, you get um, given the opportunity to report a problem. So once you put your postcode in, you get taken to a map that looks something like this. At the point when you click on the map, there's a little bit this a little bit of sort of messaging going on behind the scenes, um, where this application figures out, given the, the, the postcode of the or the latitude longitude line, the point that you clicked on the map. Um, which, which councils are responsible for problems in that area. And this is really important because in some, <laughs> in some locations, for example, where I live in Seven Oaks, Seven Oaks District Council might be responsible for fixing repeating, but Kent County Council will be responsible for fixing potholes. 
So we need to know for every point in the country um, which which administrative areas that point is within and who's responsible for fixing what type of problem. Um, the way that we know that is that we use a data set published by London Survey called Boundary Line, um, which is an open data set. Um, and what this does is specifies all of those things, all of the administrative boundaries of the UK. Um, when we when we first set up Fix My Street, which was about six years ago, um, we this data set wasn't open. It was a proprietary data set. And um, we were lucky because our funding for Fix My Street came from um, the Office of the Deputy Prime Minister. And part of that funding arrangement meant that we had access to use data sets like this. But if we hadn't, we wouldn't have been able to build Fix My Street. Um, but what we did do um, behind the scenes, uh, the developers amongst you will be pleased to hear that White Stand and Fix My Street don't have their own version of the code that does this kind of thing. There's one service that we use to translate points into administrative areas, which is called Mapit. Um, and Mapit is um, a free service if you're a charity, um, um, and it's also open source software, so if anyone else wants to take it and, and use it, um, then they can. And Mapit is a thing which allows us to do this, this calculation. Um, if, so there some other potential uses of Mapit, because um, all the code is open source, so if you are a Python developer, for example, and you have a set of boundaries that you want to, to load into it and query, you might be trying to look at, for example, am I standing near a listed building in the UK, or am I standing in a listed building in the UK? If a charity publishes all of that data online, you can take that data set, you can load it into Mapit, and, and have an application which comes with that answer if you want to. Um, so that's an example of, of an open data set which we use, boundary line, which is completely core to a number of the services that we provide. And if it didn't exist, we wouldn't be able to provide those services. Um, the second thing I want to talk about is uh, basically a product we, we created called MapUmental, which maps public transport travel times. So this is a site called property.mapumental.com, um, and if you go here, you can use it to calculate, say um, you commute to um, Parliament every day, um, and you want to you want to move further out of the suburbs, and you want to know where you can live that is within an hour's distance of apartments by public transport. You can um, put in the postcode. You can set a slider to saying an hour, and it will show you all the areas that you can live. Um, as I said, it's going to be much much easier if I just show you that. <laughs> so that's the house apartment. If I want to live sixty minutes away. And those are all the places, places that I can live. Um, with, with a caveat, which is that this data set is based on data from 2011, which means that high speed one is not here, so you could probably live somewhere out here as well. Um, so, this was something that we made um, as a sort of general purpose tool which takes this, this data set, which is called MPTDR, which is a record of every um, bus, train, tube. Um, coach, tram, ferry journey um, in one week of a particular year um, and loads it into our database so that when someone puts in a postcode and, um, and hits enter, then there's a whole lot of calculations that happen using a routing algorithm to figure out um, what the, the profile of, of, of the isochromes, as they're called, um, looks like for that location. Um, and we sort of built this as, a, as almost as an experiment initially because we thought it was fun and interesting. Um, and then we thought there might be some, some commercial opportunity here. So this is our, our one bit of code that we've written that isn't open source. Um, this is a project that we've done with the Welsh Government using map commercial technology um, where we were looking at um, travel times for Welsh secondary schools. 
if you're if you're a government, um, it turns out that one of the things that you want to do is check that people who maybe don't have a car um, can still get access to public services like schools and like hospitals. So they have to do things they call public transport accessibility mapping, where they calculate um, travel times to various public services. So this is a map that shows for every school in the UK, uh, sorry, in Wales, and um, for every point in Wales, how long it would take for you to get to a nearest school. Um, the areas which are covered in red are just around um, a school, and they are about uh, 15 minutes, I think. Um, and the areas which are white are over two hours. So if you live in one of those white regions, then you do have to travel over two hours by public transport to get to your nearest secondary school um, for, I think it's 8.30 in the morning. Um, and this um, this is something that they're taking and combining with, uh, with census data to say, so it might not, it might, this might not be a problem because there might be two people who live in those, those sparsely populated areas, in those, those white areas. Um, and so they don't need to provide more services and any more transport services and they don't need to provide more schools. Um, but it might be that there are people who aren't being properly catered for, so that's something that they can learn from this. Um, and this is a sort of a high resolution chart of the area around Pembroke. Um, so one thing just to say about that is that the reason why they should they want to do that is that um, they currently use a tool called Accession, which is a type of um, geographical information system tool. And in order to use that to do this kind of thing, they have to program millions and millions of point, point calculations. Um, and the alternative using that mental, they just give us a set of postcodes and we write scripts and then they get the output. So it's much less labor intensive, yeah. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is the series that we'll find, um, which is a site that we created quite a long time ago, uh, called, um, which is at urlc.myspace.com. Um, and this was, it was actually like a, an add-on to that commencement. We were trying to um, think about, so my society is a remote organization. We don't have an office. We work, sometimes work here, we work in a few other places. People live in Scotland, in Wales, um, in various parts of the UK. And often people are, someone's moving house, they might want to know where can I live that's within a decent amount of travel time from my, from my colleagues. So they can use that mental for that. But if they want to live somewhere teeny, if they want to live somewhere pretty, um, then it might be helpful for them to have a rating of that as well. And that was the motivation behind it. Maybe we could collect some seamlessness data for the UK and use that in our house buying decisions. Um, so this is a site which takes photos from the Geograph project. Um, which is geographic.org.uk, which is a project to try and collect a representative photo for every um, square kilometre in the UK. Um, and what we've done is just take those photos and show them randomly to someone who comes to the site and ask them to say, how soon do you think this photo is? Um, and if you click on the number, then you get shown another photo and you get told um, how close your rating was to the average and how other people have rated it. Um, and we, so we did this and it ran for a little while and it's still running in fact, but we're not sort of paying it many, much attention. Um, and this was, we were also making the data freely available for other people to just use and do whatever they want with. And someone who was elected at St Andrews um, just took the data and, and played around with it and visualized it. So this is, this is the data visualized and <coughs> darker colors correspond to more scenic um, and lighter colors less scenic. So what we learned from this was completely intuitive and you probably would have guessed beforehand which is that the coast and national parks are really seen <laughs> <laughs> and everywhere else is like you know the same um, uh, so didn't learn a huge amount <laughs> um, 
the guy who did, who did that visualization was also the reason why he was looking at it was because he had a student who was doing a dissertation um, trying to characterize the high speed two line. Um, and so he was, this is the high speed two line and the scenic estate over the top. And he was thinking about different data sets that might be useful for doing that. I don't think this, again, this tells you very, anything very interesting. That line of slightly darker blue there is the Cotswolds. Um, and I think it might be useful if, uh, at a point where they were um, evaluating different potential routes, you could compare the scenic to different routes, but that's not what, what this was for. Um, so again, there's no like massive lesson here, but it's an interesting example for us of how you, you do something and you make your data available openly for other people to use. And someone, people can just do whatever they want, and you can't predict. Like, we, we have no idea when we set up scenic.mycenizer.org that someone would, a couple of years later, be using our data to try and characterize the scenic as the ICT line. It's not something we can predict. So it's sort of a, an example of how you make something open and new things can happen. Um, another example from some of the consulting work we've been doing recently is um, around bin collections. So one of the services that we, we all interact with the local government is um, bin collections. <coughs> and it turns out that if you want to provide a really good bin collection service to your, to your citizens, you, it's, it basically comes down to a data problem. So we've been doing some work with a lot of councils and with a group of councils in Kent to help them redesign their bin collection service. This is a, a page in that on the design of bin. And this is, <coughs> The, sort of the, the, the final page that we designed to show how we thought they ought to present the results of um, when, when should my next thing collect? When, so, what's the date of my next thing collection? This is the, the design that, that displays that data. Um, and when we showed this to councils, they sort of all said, Yeah, this is, this is a nice thing, it'd be great to have this. But it turns out that some of them don't actually know when their thing collections are. Um, so they can't produce something like this because they know that it's sort of it's this day for this road. It's, it's normally this day of the week, but there might be a, like a, a block of flats on that road that's a slightly different way. There might be someone down track that has like, some slight nuance. Um, there are also some really um, bizarre um, instances of where so someone one of the councils was telling me that um, they learned that uh, in one particular street in their area, um, the, the bin truck was, would drive down it on the way to go somewhere else. And the residents on that street noticed that the bin road was driving down that road and thought, oh, it must be our collection day, and put their bins out. And then their neighbours saw them put the bins out and thought, oh, it's our collection day, they put their bins out. And then the bin men saw them put the bins out and thought, oh, they're putting the bins out, it must be their collection day. <laughs> and so the collection managed to change by itself through a process of basically social negotiation, which is kind of extraordinary, and the sort of thing that you know doesn't match what's in someone's database somewhere. Um, so the, um, the way that, that councils were trying to get around this problem is um, there was one, I think it might have been Mason, but I'm, I could be wrong, um, decided that the only way they could do it was by putting two people, um, data, research, data collectors basically, on the back of the bin lorries for a week and literally noting down by hand every single bin that was collected from um, every single house. Uh, and that's the way they, they built their data from the ground up. Um, there was another council, um, who had a different idea <laughs> they wanted to. Um, this, by the way, isn't actually any like uh, official data that I've got, and I've just drawn a blue line on that to illustrate what they might do. Um, so they were thinking, well, if we monitor where our trucks are at a driving by using a GPS tracker, we can look at the roads they're driving down, and maybe we can build the data from, from that. Um, so what they were going to do was, if a truck is driving at 20 miles an hour, it's probably not collecting bits. If it's stationary, it's probably not collecting bits. 
going about walking people to see it probably is. So they would look at all the, the, the roads and the, the lines where it was going around walking speed. And then they would draw an extra sort of boundary around those lines. And councils have um, big databases of all the properties that, that, that are within that area. So they can then look at all the properties that are within that line and say, okay, so this council had this big collection on this day, and then build a data set from the ground at that day. And that was potentially a much cheaper alternative than having the two people on the back of the truck because. Um, they have to spend a few pounds on GPS tracker and, and some time with some of the guys to analyze the data. However, it's probably a lot more prone to cross process. So I think until they actually do it and see the results of it, we won't know um, how good a method it was. Um, and this story has pretty much nothing to do with open data. Um, but I think that if councils released big collections data openly, then people could build services like the one I just showed you um, for them and for, for, for the general population. And councils wouldn't have to worry about that. The final thing I want to talk about is They Work for You, which is one of the first projects that, that we ever ran in one of our most successful sites. Um, it gets about 5,000 visits a day and sends 30,000 email alerts a day to people who want to know what they're um, the, um, the story behind They Work for You is it's, it's pretty interesting. So, it, this was originally created in the early 2000s and um, it scrapes data off the Parliament website. So the Parliament publishes all of Hansard publicly, um, but it doesn't publish it in a structured way. So there's no way of searching for, on the Parliament website, for everything that was sent by a particular person, or, for example, every time the, the words knife crime were used in the debate, there's no way of doing that on the Parliament site. So what they work for you guys is gets all that data from the Parliament site and puts it into a structured format on our website so that people can search it and can see what specific people have said. Um, the, the, the slightly um, amusing thing about how this was set up is that uh, when um, the developers first created this, the, the people who created this, this was before my society, they were just doing it because they thought this was a good thing to do. Um, they, uh, the data the Parliament was publishing was copyrighted, it was, it was under parliamentary copyright. Um, and they were scraping it and putting it into the site and effectively stealing it because they, you know, they weren't allowed to do what they were doing, they were stealing the data. Um, but they were doing it because they thought that this it shouldn't belong to Parliament, it should belong to citizens, um, and so they made it available publicly. And they took the gamble that Parliament aren't worth going to um, sue a small group of developers who have basically no money um, and were doing something that was manifestly in public interest. Um, This is the, the transcripts that you get when they work for you. So if you, you, you look at a debate and want to be pulled into its structured format, this is what you see. So you see individual people and what they're saying. Um, there's um, one of the things that I found, I found fascinating when I first started working on society was talking to some of the people who work on it, was that our scripts that, that take the data out of the part of the website and put it into our databases, they break extremely frequently, um, almost on a daily basis, but certainly on a weekly basis. Um, part of the reason for that is that the script is very old. Um, but another reason for it is that um, this this page is actually all written by hand. So it's not being it's not being generated automatically. Someone's actually typing it. Um, and that means that when there is an error, a bit of human error, then our scripts, which aren't you know, aren't, aren't people, so they can't cope with any kind of ambiguity in the way that we can, um, have problems. Um, one example of this is that during the summer recess, um, 
uh, or after the summer recess in the Lords, um, the, the House of Lords changed the way that they, they cited individuals on, this, um, on their transcripts. So if you look at the top, you can see the Minister of State, Minister of Justice, Lord McNally, um, saying something. Um, and after the summer recess, that changed to having a, um, a signifier of what party you belong to, um, which is a sensible thing to do when you use the particular transcripts. Um, but what that meant was that our, our script that was expecting the person's name to come just before the colon was suddenly getting really confused about why, why this person who had brackets LD in their name didn't exist in our database. Um, and through lots of errors, and then we had to fix it, spend a couple of hours fixing it. Um, and that's because of the, the structure nature of, uh, of, of what we're doing. But it's also an example how um, I think a lot of people who maybe aren't familiar with data sort of think about it as being quite a, a sort of an objective thing, um, quite a sort of rational thing. But if you're someone who's used data a lot and is involved with particularly scraping data, you realise just how messy it is and how you do really have to sort of get your hands dirty. Um, one final, final uh, interesting story about bedrock for you is um, because we call data into a structured format, we can spot things which other people in Parliament wouldn't be able to spot. So um, one day we had uh, um, a, a, an error message from our scripts that was emailed to one of our developers to say, oh, we've got a problem here because someone's voted in a debate and I don't recognise this person's name. They're not an MP, they can't have voted in the debate. Um, so the developers have looked into it a bit more detail and found out that, yes, this person used to be an MP but was no longer an MP. It's actually even worse than that because they were dead. Um, <laughs> so there, was, there was definitely no way they could have voted in the debate. Um, probably what had happened is, um, this is because of how voting works in the House of Commons, is that to vote, you walk through, you walk through a gate um, and someone watches who's walking through the gate. And they see people going walking through and then they write down your name. Um, so they either mistaken for someone else, or mistaken someone for this person who's dead, or they just missed out the name. Um, but they didn't know this, and they had no way of knowing it because they don't put the data into a structured format. But because we do, we knew that they counted someone as voting who was animated, um, and we could email them and say, uh, uh, sorry about this, but we think um, either a ghost is worth seeing your debate or a ghost is worth seeing What was the response? Um, I, I don't know, actually. Um, I think they probably didn't reply and just sort of slightly corrected it. Yes, that's that's um, the final part of the story, and that's my presentation. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture, brought to you by the Open Data Institute.